welcome to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond, medievalist and lover of literature of all kinds, both uh, the famous kinds and the more obscure kinds. And today I welcome Dr. Nadia Williams to talk about cultural Christians in the early church and the little things that they have left us, the accounts that we have from those times. And this was uh, a conversation and a book, her new book, in which I learned a lot. So I'm very pleased to share it with you today in this uh, return episode, part two of season four of Old Books with Grace. Nadia Williams has a PhD in classics from Princeton University and is a military historian of the Greco-Roman world and the co-editor of Civilians and Warfare in World History. She is book review editor at Current, where she also edits the Arena blog. She is a regular contributor to The Anxious Bench and has also written for Plow, Front Porch Republic, Church Life Journal, and History Today magazine. Welcome to Old Books with Grace, Nadia. I'm so excited that you could join me today. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I so I, I begin every episode with two questions for my guests, and um, I know they'll be hard for you because you clearly love reading old books. But the first one is, who or what is your favorite author or book from more than 50 years ago and why? So I've made, uh, I guess, a life out of reading books that are older than 50 years ago. I used <laughs> much older. <laughs> much older. I used to uh, joke to students that if it has uh, AD next to a number, I don't care. Um, <laughs> I did expand beyond that. But um, I would say I still have quite the heart for Virgil's Aeneid because that's what got me into classics all these years ago. I took Latin in high school, and it was this incredible experience uh, as a junior, just reading Virgil's Aeneid in the original Latin, and that moment of like, I'm reading Roman poetry <laughs> in Latin. Like, sure, for, forget the fact that I had to look up every single word, and like, it took me an hour to read a line of verse, but it was this just this love that I still have for it. Oh, I love that so much. I love, there's nothing like that thrill. Um, and I'm a horrible, horrible Latinist, I like barely can do it. So I, I really admire that that was like the entry point for you. But um, there's nothing like that thrill. Like I do this with Middle English where you're going, this is coming to me like sort of unfair unfogged by time as a language like obviously I'm fogging it up as I read it but the yes. word itself <laughs> here it is like that's so crazy <laughs> yeah just the idea you suddenly feel this connection to an ancient author over 2,000 years removed and like here I am the 11th grader just reading it and it's uh there's there's nothing quite like it that's definitely the gateway drug oh yeah oh yeah I love that okay so Get to know you question number two, which literary character do you most identify with and why? It's interesting to think about it, but um, over the course of the pandemic, it was it was really a weird time. 2020 was a weird time to be reading Cyprian. Oh, yeah. Uh, writing on the plague. 
But um, I found myself really fascinated with this bishop who just so tenderly cared for his flock in the middle of a very different kind of pandemic, and yet one that echoed our own. And I just loved that tenderness and found myself really um, relating to it. He's not a literary character, and yet he's writing these sermons and treatises. um, And as a mom, I just found something so unexpectedly relatable as I was like caring for my children in this weird, stressful time. Mm. That's so funny because you're, he's not literary, but you're still, it's, it's similar in that you're getting this sort of echo of somebody's life across, uh, across these documents. And um, I had not really read much or encountered much. Cyprian, I work on much later things, um, before reading your book. And that was somebody that I actually really fell in love with in your book. I mean, he's such a lovely, compassionate person that you really feel um, thousands of years later, you know, you're, you're really getting his, uh, his care, uh, which was lovely, lovely to read. Yeah, that's how I felt reading him as well. Um, you know, with some bishops, some some pastors from antiquity, you read them and you think, I don't know if I would have wanted to be in this person's <laughs> church. Uh, but with Cyprian, I was thinking like, this is somebody that I would have loved just having a conversation with and um, just well, hearing his teaching. When you were telling about his work in ransoming um, captives, I just found that so moving, so uh, maybe you could share that little anecdote with us before we move on, because that was something that, uh, yeah, you you just felt, oh, this is a, a man who is really caring about his little flock and is working so hard um, in ways that are, that feel a little unexpected, but then absolutely, you know, you're like, wow, yeah, that's a that's a real Christian man right there. Like I see it, um, which is amazing. Yeah, so the story there was uh, the uh, a group of pastors from another uh, church in a in a city not too far away from Cyprian's Carthage wrote to him to report that a number of Christians had been kidnapped by um, some tribes, uh, native tribes who lived to the south. So we're talking this is North Africa. It's section that is a part of the Roman Empire, but you have this sense of instability and attacks that are happening across the border. And so these Christians have been captured and uh, they could be ransomed back, but there's just this sense of hopelessness and threat. And of course, a ransom is a lot of money for a poor little church in another town. And Cyprian writes back this really moving letter um, that is both theologically grounded, just explaining like why is every single Christian precious in God's eyes, um, and also explaining why he and his church immediately raised this massive ransom sum, where you know, like it cost them a lot. These are not necessarily super wealthy Christians either, uh, but you see this desire to um, love your neighbor um, in prayer, but also in like tangible ways. Mm-hmm. And this is all um, for those of you who, uh, like me, are less familiar with the earliest years of the church, all pre-Constantine, all pre-sort uh, of imperial uh, Christianity stuff going on. So th- this is a, a smaller movement, a less prestigious movement, and yet they're still um, doing all these things. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, so this is all coming from 
your new book, Cultural Christians in the Early Church. Um, and I really enjoyed this book. I, I learned a lot while I was reading it. Um, how do you define cultural Christians, which is such a prominent idea in this book and prominent in your title? Yeah, and that's a good question. Then definitions really matter. Um, so in this case, um, my definition was cultural Christians are people who go to church on Sunday, but the rest of the week is largely influenced by the culture around rather than by the gospel. So uh, when making everyday decisions about things like marriage and relationships, finances, uh, food, how you interact with your neighbor, uh, how you think about uh, patriotism, and so on and so forth, the decisions of cultural Christians are motivated more by the culture around um, and not necessarily by like the teachings of Christ. And it's really tricky because um, this includes both people who perhaps are more aware of it, but more uh, people who are not necessarily as aware of it. Because, I mean, we live in the world. We try this, not to be of it. <laughs> right. Well, and this was a, uh, a great um, sort of reminder for me because I grew up, and um, I know a lot of other people did too. It's not just me. I grew up in a tradition that really valorized the early church and kind of saw it as a primal font of all goodness and that everybody in the early church was... Uh, you know, like fully devoted with their whole hearts and that we should emulate them as much as possible. And, you know, it was a very central idea. And so reading this was super interesting because, you know, oh, this conflict and um, and at times a, a, a conflict that is under the surface, not even an obvious conflict between uh, cultural ways of living and uh, countercultural ways of living as modeled by Christ and his followers, that, that that was ongoing from the very beginning. Yeah. Well, and in a way it makes sense because again, all of us are living here. Like we're not, yes. we're not just blocking off everything around us and going into a monastery or the desert. Although, as I argued, that also doesn't quite solve the problem. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Right. So that, that um, they're not different than us, that they yeah. experience, um, though in, in different forms, a lot of the same struggles as we do today mm -hmm. is one of the most important points that you are developing in this book. Um, and so one great underlying theme is that uh, we should be paying attention to not only the great saints and the martyrs yes. and the, you know, really, oh, like awe-inspiring, stirring stories of the time period, but also to the context, to the ordinary folks in the background and in the margins of those stories as well. They're present too, um, but they're not at the center. And so in other words, to we should be paying attention to people who are a lot like ourselves, um, because I think I can safely make the assumption that most of us maybe not all of us, but most of us listening and talking are more like the unknown um, apostate who's trying to return to the church at Carthage than like, say, Augustine or Cyprian. Um, so what can we learn from cultural Christians of the early church rather than only, you know, the, the big narratives, the grand narratives of the saints and the martyrs? It's humbling. Um, it's a way to look at ourselves through people who lived like 2,000 years ago. Uh, 
Because a lot of times we're not aware of the kinds of areas where we struggle to, where we are also more influenced by culture around us than something else. And it's, uh, so it's one thing to write a book about like beating ourselves up about it, but it's another to say like, well, let's look at earlier Christians and how they were trying to solve um, these kinds of problems, uh, or, or at least trying to figure out like, what is it like to follow Jesus fully? And can we even do that while living in a state uh, that is not, whose goal is not to follow Jesus? Uh, so, so that was definitely kind of um, this big question. And trying to think also about how we deceive ourselves. And that's where, um, and that's where those narratives about uh, the famous martyrs really are kind of almost a red herring because they're mm. exceptions. They're mm-hmm. always the exception rather than the rule. Right, that makes sense. And if we are um, not kind of recognizing that and acknowledging that, then we're either going to have this uh, <laughs> this sort of oh, we're never going to be good enough, blah, 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 which is which is uh, true in one sense, right? An important realization, part of our path of repentance and part of this path of turning and turning again, as, as T.S. Eliot would later call it. But, um, but also to recognize that there are people who looked a lot like us in this time too and to take encouragement from that. Um, yes. And the encouragement is definitely something that I wanted to focus on because it's so easy um, it's so easy to think of um, of this as an exercise in historical gossip, you know, like, mm. look at these people, look how terrible they were. Uh, and in some ways, um, it is more entertaining. Um, some of those stories, uh, even like zooming in on Ananias and Sapphira and just thinking like, they did what? Why are they thinking this is acceptable? Um, but at the same time, realizing that there's a point here to get to the encouraging part. Um, yeah. Right, right. And that um that you 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 look at the movement of the church as a whole and you're saying, wow, the, the church is still growing and expanding and um the gospel is being being shared even in the midst of not everybody was like this holy heroic martyr that 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 they were still people like us and that Christ's love moves through um and is shared by imperfect folks which is really lovely and yes. and uh and then also the the mirror aspect of history where you're going okay i see myself there well something to think about <laughs> so yeah it's really weird to write a book like that and to think like i'm it's almost like i'm writing about myself yeah. as a historian <laughs> well this is funny because this that was my my recent experience in writing my book, which um, was really fun to track your book because our books came out within like a yeah. week of each other. So it was uh, yes. uh, very interesting to, to to look at your journey on social media and, and you were in a very similar boat to me with it. But um, also it's funny to hear that you were in a similar boat to me writing it because one of my chapters is very much about uh, cultural medieval Christianity and this kind of acting as a mirror to us and the encouragement and the danger there. And um, and so I really loved seeing that in your book too, which leads me to my next question, which is which chapter or section of the book did you yourself learn the most from as you were researching and writing? 
That's a good question. Uh, perhaps it was the last one on the desert fathers and mothers, kind of uh, the idea, can you run away from the church? Is this the solution to mm-hmm. giving up cultural Christianity? So that's uh, so in that chapter, I'm asking the question, kind of building up uh, from the rest of the book, uh, if everybody in their church is guilty of all these cultural sins, wouldn't the logical solution just be to burn it all down or just leave it all behind and go into the desert alone and um, live a holy life apart from all these really sinful people in churches? And of course, my answer is no, because um, the sin is with us. We carry it with us. And so reading so many of these early um, desert fathers and mothers, uh, was fascinating in seeing how they wrestled with this. The idea of a man, for instance, who lived in the desert for 20 years and then said, I still struggle with anger. It's like, there's nobody around you, but you still struggle with sin because this is who we are. Yeah. And I, I, um, that was a really interesting chapter because it, it really asks us to think about that fine line between, um, you know, withdrawal from the world between being like, well, I, you know, I am called to be in this world, but not of it. Like, what does that mean? Actually, that's a very hard question. And we can't, we can't just be satisfied with a sort of black and white answer to it, that there's going to be this. And, and that's why, you know, the sort of fascinating thing is that monasticism, which was a different form of communal living grew out of the initial, like total withdrawal where you're like, oh, it turns out, very few people are really going to be real hermits um, and real, uh, just really totally divided from from the world. Um, and monasticism has its own fascinating, unique story of of uh, redemption and um, corruption, and then renewal. I mean, you see it throughout history over and over. So, seeing that at its very beginnings, at its core, again, destroying this idea that there was an initial real purity that then you can reclaim somehow, but that there was always fruitfulness and danger from the beginning is, is fascinating to see. Um, And for me, for me, it was really fascinating to see confirmed kind of my suspicion that we are sanctified when we're in community with other people. mm -hmm. Like we need other sinners to convict us of our own sinfulness Mm -hmm. and to remind us that we're really, um, Rejecting cultural Christianity means embracing other people and loving them, even when they're difficult, which again, as a mom, like, I feel like this is my job description every day. <laughs> so true, though. And, it, and it's really a gift that um, that you can read history and read someone like it's, whose life choices and life path is as different as yours as Saint Anthony or Mary of Egypt and still be able to see see some of your own struggles and your own um path in that extremely different life which i think is a central gift of reading historical writing but something that's not necessarily immediately there something you have to cultivate right Absolutely. Yeah. You have to think like, how do we relate to this? Uh, and, and as you, as a medievalist, I'm sure you struggle with this too. The question of like, do we, when we read these sources, do we, do we highlight mostly what's weird and unusual and not like us? Or do we look for the aspects that are relatable? And I choose to look for the relatable, the commonality of the human experience. 
Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And I like that you have asked both sides of that question because it's funny, I'm I'm listening to you answer and um, I sometimes do the what's strange and weird and sometimes mm-hmm. what's relatable, but they both end up really speaking to uh, your own values in different ways, right? Because you yes. have to end up asking yourself, why is this so strange to me? Mm-hmm. Why does this feel, when it clearly wasn't to them, I mean, what's... What's at stake here that I'm missing? And then it ends up also telling you something about yourself, um, which is another reason to read more history and more literature of the past. Um, well, and read it and keep rereading it at different yes. phases of life. Because yes. I first uh, I first read Mary's, um, the, the biography of Mary the Egyptian in a survey of actually medieval French literature in college. Um, my second major was French literature, and I took most of my classes in the medieval side of things because it had so much connection to the ancient world. So I felt like my two majors related. But um, at the time when I read all of those medieval French lives, I was thinking, like, what a bunch of weirdos. <laughs> um, and so now coming back to it 20 years later, uh, and I'm relating to it a lot more and specifically relating to it as a mom and as a Christian, I'm realizing like this, it took some of my own growth to be able to appreciate these texts and to be able to relate to them. Mm, I totally agree. Um, I find that uh, I'm always preaching to people <laughs> probably too much about the gift of rereading, like reread, reread, because so much that you've missed will come back to you and encounter you'll encounter it in a completely different light or it won't even be that different but there will be one little thing that somehow shifts everything that you're like how did i how did i miss that before um i was taking for granted x and y and i missed z um and now they're speaking to me together and so i i really totally echo what you're saying um Okay, so one of my favorite chapters of the book was uh, you have this really interesting chapter on Christian nationalism and how um, that's clearly a very important hot-button issue right now, Um, but you describe uh, the nationalism of ancient Rome and So here's a quote, a nationalism based on belief in Roman exceptionalism was a feature of Roman religion and was also part of the worldview of many, although not all, early Christians. And now that sounds strikingly familiar to us as I read that aloud. Um, Even the word exceptionalism is a very, (laughs) you read that and go, oh, that sounds a lot like Americans. Um, You suggest that Theologically sound history is the antidote to the bromides of Christian nationalism. So in other words, you ask alongside St. Augustine, what does it mean to approach history first and foremost as a Christian rather than a resident of any earthly state? So how does this idea or that question apply to us right now? Um, Because, I mean, we're in a lot of those same battles that we're not new 1500, 1600, 1700 years ago. Yeah. Uh, So for Augustine, this was, of course, this big shock of his day that Rome has just been sacked by the Goths, uh, which was just stunning to everyone living in the Roman Empire. The city of Rome was their, like, the stronghold for 
over a thousand years at this point, and everybody's thinking like Rome will be there forever. And Christianity had up to that point always existed in the context of the Roman Empire. So it was easy to conflate the two, just as it is easy for us to conflate kind of the idea of America is a Christian nation and all of that. Uh, And what Augustine is saying is we have to look at the big picture. Mm. And for Christians, it's not just about this earthly city idealizing Rome, but it's about thinking of history as having a future event, the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. So the idea of this heavenly city as the goal of every Christian. And if you focus on that goal, suddenly the earthly suffering is not going to seem as terrible. It's still suffering. Mm -hmm. Augustine acknowledges that it was not a good time to be living in the Roman Empire. He was (laughs) not enjoying his experience. Um, And yet he's saying, instead of trying to bring about some sort of earthly kingdom, we need to focus on Christ. And I thought that was really powerful because so much of the political turmoil right now is about people trying to use earthly means to bring about earthly ends. Mm -hmm. This is not what we're called to. Yes. And I think uh, when I first read City of God, um, I was so impressed and surprised um, by Augustine's treatment of the earthly and the heavenly and kind of the admixture, the impossibility of being confident. No, this, these people are the ones who are of Christ and these people are the ones who are of the world. And that line is super clear and thick. And and he was basically blasting apart that idea where it's like, yeah, we're all, you know, in your book, you write about how um, Christians of the time were like, why are we suffering as much as the pagans are? Like, that's so unfair. We should be protected and saved from this calamity that is descending upon us all. Um, and Augustine's kind of use of that to, to, uh, to think about mystery and the role of the church in the world and, and to disentangle, um, the Roman project from the Christian project was so compelling to me and, and feels so modern still. I mean, that's a huge issue for us of, okay, how do we... How do we acknowledge, you know, that we're, we need to care for our neighbor very tangibly? And that will often mean politically, but not just totally entangle the American project with the kingdom project. I mean. Yeah. And for Augustine, this means going back and retelling the story of the history of Rome from the beginning, mm. from his own perspective. So I, I find it fascinating how much of the city of God is a work of history, like straight up history. Um, you could call it even revisionist history from his perspective as a Christian historian, taking all of those grand pagan narratives that talk about, and the gods have blessed Rome. And here's a sequence of events from the beginning to the present of how the gods have blessed Rome until those pesky Christians came along, disrupted the peace that we've always had with the gods. And now like here we are suffering, which was the pagan kind of vision of Roman history. Um, The few remaining pagans in the Roman empire actually blamed the Christians for the fall of Rome, for disrupting that traditional peace with the gods. Um, And Augustine is looking back and is saying, actually, Roman history was never perfect. Let me show you all of these disasters that clearly you suffered before, but you're forgetting that these disasters ever happened in previous Roman history as you try to tell this like 
great narrative of blessings leading up to the present curse. Mm. So we, how we tell history very much matters. And again, that's where his theology kind of comes through, like healthy, healthy theology will help you see the past accurately, and it will help you to have a, an, a healthier view of the present and the future. Yeah, and it's just so interesting hearing you describe it because in some ways I feel like a lot of Christians are almost telling like the reverse story in our context where it's like, look, the Christians were good in America and so God rewarded America and now that people are bad and not Christian anymore, America is being punished. And so in some ways it's almost the a negative photo of like Augustine's project um, and what he was countering in in City of God, and so it's just interesting to hear how uh, how with variations we're facing some really similar questions and problems that uh, listening to the wisdom of the past um, and being able to work uh, not to, to not work strictly in our uh, genres, right? Augustine is obviously writing before the modern university and before like university departments. But one of our temptations facing us today is that we want history sometimes to just be history and theology to be theology and never the twain shall meet, right? Um, and so this daring challenge to uh, not be a bad historian or a bad theologian, but to to dialogue and let them influence each other is what I'm hearing from a lot of your work and your projects. Absolutely. I would agree. Uh, but also there's this um, pagan temptation that we still have whenever we oversimplify narratives. Mm -hmm. So the pagan view of the gods was always that contract uh, idea, like as long as we perform the sacrifices, the gods will continue blessing our project. And so there is that similar um, idealization of like when Americans were good and followed God, God always blessed them. It's like, well, it does, it's not exactly how it works. Um, no, and you're, what you're um, pointing to, which is so true, is that that is both bad history, because if you read history, you begin to go, wow, you're telling only one narrative of a very particular kind of person, which is the white uh, Protestant male in America, who has some means. And then, so it's not only bad history, but it's also bad theology, because then you're preaching a a basically Pelagian, uh, well, if you work hard enough, like, it's going to be okay. You're going to earn it. It's all good. Good to go. Um, And you, you, you can do recognize the resonances of that in a lot of things that are being taught out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, this is related to another question I have, which is that you end the book with a warning to resist mining history for role models. And you suggest um, vigorously resisting heroization, valorization, and then I think implicitly the flip side of that, demonization um, of the past and of figures of the past. Why is this a dangerous practice for us today? What's at stake? Both good history and good theology, I think, are at stake. And uh, so the example I give in the book is of another topic. So um, 
years ago, towards the end of grad school, I read a book, uh, The Bad Citizen in Classical Athens. And the author looks at the classical Athenian democracy, which we also tend to idealize. And in fact, I idealized in grad school, (laughs) even though I studied it in detail, um, and shows how the typical Athenian citizen, uh, while on paper, you know, they valued citizenship, voting, serving in the military, the democratic project, uh, serving on juries, and so on. Uh, But the author goes through... um, the evidence and shows how the typical Athenian citizen was just as likely to kind of try to fudge things in the democratic project, uh, shirk jury duty, get out of military service, uh, not pay taxes. And, you know, you keep on going and it's kind of like, well, how did the Athenian democracy manage to work along with so many really terrible citizens? But the point um, that I took from that book that I thought was really convicting and I keep coming back to in my other projects is when we have this idea of Athenian democracy, great, or the early church, great, we tend to see only what we want to see. Mm. And people are really complicated and messy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's really difficult to tell stories that are appropriately complicated and messy. It's so much easier to just like oversimplify. And we shouldn't. We have to resist this, but it's hard work. And that's, um, and I think that's the task that I have for myself. That's the task that I have for my readers. Uh, and if you read the Bible carefully, you see that there are a lot of these complicated, really messy people, like full spectrum. And that's what it is. That's the, that's the more accurate picture of Jesus's kingdom. He works with all of us. I really appreciate that because I think you're you're right. It's so much easier for us to tell stories where there are bad guys and there are good guys. And that's, you know, that's the way it that's is. It. <laughs> but that's not how our lives work. That's not how our own sins are. At one moment, we might be, you know, I, I mean, as a mom, I feel this on a deep level at one moment. I am, you know, wow, I reacted to that with so much maturity and grace. And then the next moment, I'm like, my kid's going to be in therapy because of me. And both are true. Like, you can't, no one can get beyond that. And so I think expecting that of our uh, historical roots is not going to work out well for us, both in the ways we tell stories and understand the world. And then that reverberates out into the ways that we treat each other and understand ourselves right now. So I really appreciate that project. And that's a really good point that the connection that you just made, I think is really important, how we treat our historical characters and how we treat each other. Mm-hmm. Because I think the two are very connected, especially for those of us who study Christianity. Like how do we relate to brothers and sisters in church today? Yes. Because I mean, a truly Time is going to end, and our brothers and sisters of the past are as much our brothers and sisters as the ones that we are sitting next to in pews at church. And mm-hmm. and so that's interesting on, on like a, just an abstract question of charity, of, of reading people of the past and, and of holding them accountable and also um, loving them. And then it clearly reverberates into our lives right now in this present moment in time. Uh, And that's where I see the uh, intellectual and the 
spiritual callings of looking and reading the work of the past to be super intertwined in one sense. And I see that in your work too. Absolutely. Yeah. I really appreciate how you and I are kind of doing parallel projects. Like you're in the medieval world. Um, we're just a thousand years apart. That's all it is. <laughs> just That's a mere thousand years. That's all. I know. Well, in God, <laughs> In God's kingdom, what is that? No, it's a, it's a drop in the bucket. Um, yes. And also a lot. A lot has happened. So, I mean, you know. A lot both. has happened, yeah. <laughs> so, um, as a historian, speaking of those extra thousand years, a thousand years that uh, I don't know that much about, I'd love to hear what primary sources you suggest for folks who are wanting to dive in deeper Um and hear some of the voices that you are so interested in that you've devoted your life to learning more about. Where should they go? What should they read? What do you what do you suggest? So it's going to sound a little bit weird, but I think Christians need to read more pagans. Mm. If you want to understand the early church, go back to Homer, go back to Virgil, but also go back and read a lot of Greek tragedy because you get to see the human experience, like the really, like the grit, the suffering of a world without the knowledge of Christ. And it's going to open your eyes to the kind of beauty and wonder that the earliest converts would have seen where you suddenly see a God who cares for you instead of gods who scheme behind the scenes for their mm. own purposes and humans end up being collateral damage. Mm. That's a good way of putting that. Are there editions or translations that you particularly like? I mean, I know that when I have talked to folks, something that uh, stymies a lot of people is that they're like, well, there are so many, I don't even know which one to pick. Do you have favorites that you enjoy? Well, I would, I would say people put too much pressure on the translations, mm -hmm. you know, just pick whatever, like whatever, <laughs> seriously, seriously yeah. though, there are so many options, uh, something like the Odyssey, there have been, if I, if I remember the, reading this correctly, over 20 translations of the Odyssey that have been published since the year 2000. Oh my I mean, gosh. this is nuts. Yes. It's a cottage industry. Um, so just pick whatever resonates with you. Uh, read a few pages from each to see which language connects to you. Mm. Because the whole point of reading translation is to find something that will connect to you, just like the original connected to the original audiences. Mm. So there's, there's that benefit to it. Just like with Bible translations, which is another thing that people mm. fight about. <laughs> but really just pick something that you can connect to. Because if you don't want to read it, then that translation is not working. Don't let the translation separate you from the author. That's a great point. Um, if you're not enjoying the flow and the rhythm of the language, and then you're not going to read it. You're not going to finish it, which exactly. totally invalidates the point of picking up Homer or Virgil. Yes. Um, and how about secondary sources? What, what books really helped you to understand the ancient world? So to name one really good recent read, I really enjoyed Tom Holland's Dominion. Mm. I know um, a lot of people have been enjoying it over the past year, and there's good reason for that. Um, I also really love the work of Mary Beard. She is so um, just irreverently funny, mm -hmm. but in the process, she really draws you into the ancient world and all of that 
in all of the weirdness. She probably highlights more the weirdness of it all than the relatability, but she does it so beautifully. She's very, very readable. And again, that's the thing with the ancient world. You want to read books that are approachable and readable, even as they are very well researched. Absolutely. Um, I, I love and appreciate that deeply when academics put their time and effort into being readable and accessible because that opens up uh, a real joy that is sometimes hard to get to and obscured by by the sort of thickets of language that build up in different academic disciplines. Um, yeah. Well, we are heading towards the end of our time together. Um, what are you up to these days? Where can folks find you online if they'd like to learn more about your work and what you're doing? Where can they find you? So I, um, I'm book review editor at Current. It's a small magazine of cultural religion and politics. And I also run a blog there, the arena, um, with several other people. So we, um, so there's a lot, there's a lot of great stuff there, not just from me, but from other historians, uh, literature scholars, political scientists. It's, um, it's a really fun labor of love in bringing together thought, uh, thoughtful Christians to consider things that are relevant today, but also connect to the past. Great. Do you have, are you on, uh, I think you're on Twitter, right? I am on Twitter. Any social media or yeah. Yeah. Twitter is. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Nadia, for coming on to talk about your new book, Cultural Christians in the Early Church. Um, I really learned a lot while reading it. I'm thankful for what you're doing. Well, thank you, Grace. And I'm so grateful for your work. Thanks. Thanks again for listening to Old Books with Grace. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. You can find me online on Instagram at Old Books with Grace or on Twitter slash X at Grace Hammond PhD. I'd love to hear from you. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would very much appreciate it if you left a rating or review on the platform of your choice. That really helps other people find it. Next time, I will be chatting with Dr. Jessica Hooten Wilson on the works of Flannery O'Connor. I'll see you then.